Psalm 130, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O God, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Hezekiah is king of Judah, and he pours out his heart before the Lord. We think, or many think, that Hezekiah is the human author here, but if not, it certainly parallels to Hezekiah's uh, time of his life. Clearly, he is confessing his own personal sin as well as the sins of the nation of Judah. He is because of his position as king and intercessor. And I would remind you and all those who have a place of authority, you fathers and husbands and mothers and teachers and all who stand in God's place, you are to be an intercessor, as we've seen in the life of Abraham, standing in the gap, pleading for our children and grandchildren, our nation, our neighbors and our church members and friends. And we remember that godly Samuel, the the prophet and minister to King Saul and David, told the people, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Samuel thought it would be a sin for him to cease in that ministry of intercession. And I think so lightly, we put so lightly an appraisal upon it, but it's something every one of us can do, no matter what stage we are in life, no matter how limited we are in mobility. Uh, The elderly can be interceders, although they may call themselves shut in, and they very well may be. The work of prayer is work. Our Lord said to watch and pray, and that you enter not into temptation. And oh, I... If we, the Lord would revive and His people and the Spirit would move His people to intercede, we see what glorious things He did on behalf of Lot, the, the, saving the family and redeeming them because of uh, Abraham's intercession. And Samuel, who often interceded for Saul and for the nation of Israel, God forbid that I should sin against you in ceasing to pray for you. Now let me ask you a question as your pastor of, of this church. You would consider it a sin if I did not stand in the place of prayer on your behalf. A major part of my ministry is private. There's a public part that you see and and, and observe, the private part of taking you and your children and your situations before the throne of grace is a very key part of my ministry here. And I, I don't draw that to myself, every true minister. Did not the apostle say we should give ourselves over to what? To the ministry and to to the prayer and to the word of God. And so these that is my work order, if you will. And but we all have this place of intercession. There are certain people that God will place in your life and in your sphere of influence that you're spiritually responsible for. Don't ever forget that. And you may say, what can I do? You can pray. You can ask the Lord to speak to their hearts and move upon them and do His will in their lives, to open their hearts to the gospel. You can invite them to hear the gospel. But you can certainly pray. If they'll not even listen to your voice, God will listen to your voice and you can pray. And then there was before Samuel... Godly Abraham that we mentioned, interceding before the Lord for his nephew, uh, Lot. But here Hezekiah prays and confesses the sins of the nation as if they were his own. Do you see the key part of an intercessor is entering into the sorrows, the sins, as it were, the condition of those they're praying for. 
We often urge one another, pray for this one as if it were your own son in harm's way over in, in Iraq or somewhere, or if it was your child in prison or your child on drugs. If you put that in that situation, it brings it closer to home, doesn't it? And if we pray for Lord, we often look upon our nation, and I've prayed this morning for the sins of the nation. But as we mourn and repent of our sins, we should repent of our nation's sins as if they were our own. Some people uh, distance themselves far and, and from it and say, well, we don't protect, participate in those things. We're not guilty of those things. But our nation is the guilty of the abortion and the murder of innocent children. And we should take that before the Lord and earnestly plead it and own it and possess and, and stand in that place of intercession as if, and Hezekiah does this, he prays for Israel as if he and Israel were one. And these type of interceders are few. Not many people take it upon themselves to do such spiritual searching and repenting and pleading on behalf of others. No wonder our nation is in the condition it's in. No wonder our families are in the condition they're in and our churches are cold and lethargic. We point to our programs and to our buildings and to our budgets and to our position. And we, we point to these things that, that matter nothing in God's side. The size of our organization the number of people, all those kinds of things, as, as if those were evidences of the Lord's blessing. How silly could it be? Well, we know the cults are growing by leaping bam, leaps and bounds, and they possess great wealth, but they, are, they don't have the Lord's blessing upon them. And so we need to be very careful about this. And we see the condition that we're in. I, I, I marvel, I think, that some of God's people don't realize what a late hour it is and how gross the sins of our nation how far removed we are from morality and in the position of the family and God's order of things. And we see laws being passed to accommodate sin. And uh, there's nothing new under the sun. That doesn't make things right because they're legal. And so we need to intercede, don't we? Instead of complaining and wailing to one another, we ought to take it before the Lord. Who, who can do something about it? Who can change the Supreme Court justices' hearts if they're about to rule on something this this week, or that judge, wherever he is, he's been allowed, or she's been allowed there to be there by God. There's no position of authority that has not been allowed by the Lord to be in that place. And so we need to tell the Lord about them. He, that's His will for us. I cannot explain to you the mysteries of God's sovereignty in answering prayer, but He is, is sovereign and He does answer prayer. And He tells us to pray. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that He'd send forth laborers in the field. Pray for one another. Bear you one another's burdens. So this is the, the clear will of the, of the Lord. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known before the throne of God. Now we search our hearts and make sure those requests line up with God's will. And the only way we'll know that is to be deeply involved in the study of His Word. Lord, you said, do you know why Elijah was so successful in praying that God would withhold rain? That wasn't just some whim. That wasn't something he said, let's just prove him something, Lord. I don't God had said, when you go into idolatry, he'd already promised them that. When my people go into idolatry, I will withhold rain as a sign of my displeasure. Elijah was doing nothing but claiming and praying the word of God. What God, you did you not say, is what he's saying. There. That's why he could pray with withhold rain. And the contest between the prophets of Baals was not a contest between Elijah's spirituality and his greatness as a, po a, a prophet. He was just saying, praying the will of God. And you know, it was as if God was waiting for somebody, one of his people, one of his men, one of his prophets, to claim what he'd said he would do. 
We know that's the case because the Lord says in Ezekiel, I have yet been inquired of of Israel to do what I want to do. So it seems as if the withholding matter of revival or blessing or correction or discipline or salvation is the place of the intercessor. Well, John Phillips writes, the world will never know what it owes to the presence in the midst of a few godly intercessors who pour out their souls before God for the land in which they live. We have big mega churches and and most of the citizenry of the United States claims to be Christians, but I wonder how many intercessors we have in all those numbers. This psalm is divided into two parts. The first part is the the writer's personal experience, and the second part is a a public exhortation. And so we will deal with the first, and and as the Lord gives time, as I take advantage of that time, we'll get to the, the second part of public exhortation. But we see, first of all, his personal experiences in verses 1 through 6, out of the depth. So this is a dark time, isn't it? A dark time personally, a dark time of spiritual problems. I cried unto thee, O Lord. And we see that he's not just praying, he's crying. That denotes not just the sound and the, the, the crying out audibly, but it's the lifting up of the heart, the desperateness of the situation, of the, the uh, prophet or the king coming before the Lord. Lord, hear my voice. He's not being presumptuous here. He's begging, Lord, hear me. He knows the Lord can choose to or not. The Lord sometimes does not answer immediately or accordingly because he needs to do a work in our lives. We might be asking amiss, and the Lord needs to deal with our pride, and he needs to work on us as we're asking him to work on somebody else. And so he says, I'm crying unto the Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Well, we know the scripture says the Lord's ear is not heavy that he cannot hear. You and I may have hearing problems as we age, but the Lord hears the feeblest cry of the weakest saint. And his ear is not heavy that he cannot hear, nor his arm shortened that it cannot save. Now, there's not a person under the sound of my voice, I doubt. If I were to ask you, can the Lord, is the Lord able to send revival to this nation? We'd all say, oh, of course. Is the Lord able to revive his church? Of course, preacher. Is the Lord able to save your son or daughter or that one in your class or that neighbor or someone? Yes. And is the Lord able to, to, to part the Red Sea? We could go down the list of things and we'd readily say yes. The problem is we do not fully enter into that and to, to believe it and to put, put it to the test. And so we see him depressed in verses 1 and 2. And I would admit there was plenty to be depressed about. Even as our own circumstances today. The situation at hand had caused this depression. Out of the depths I have cried unto thee, O Lord. He's in the depths of despair. Perhaps you're in that situation today. It's a commonplace if you're a human being on this planet going through life. Whether you're in the faith or outside of Christ. I would tell you if you're outside of Christ, your despair is one that needs to be dealt with in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And much of the cloud would dissipate. But as we're on this pilgrimage from here to there, from earth to glory, there will be times and seasons and situations that will cause despair. We think of Jonah in the belly of that fish, crying out, lifting up his voice. He's at the bottom. Does it get any lower than that? That's about as low as you can get. Waves of trouble have covered and crushed him. We think that the human writer, as I've mentioned, is King Hezekiah. And if that is the case, it is not hard to understand why he's in such despair 
and depression. There's a strong similarity between the words here and the words we find in Isaiah chapter 38 verse 9 where we read, The writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and he was recovered of his sickness. He was recovered from a near-death illness. And if any of you have been in that situation, you know what a despair that would be. But still, he had horrible problems. And though the healing came, many of the problems did not go away. Now, we urge those who are outside of Christ to come to Christ. But don't believe a false gospel that once you become the Lord's, you'll have no more problems. You'll never be susceptible to the depressions or the problems of life. If anyone teaches you that, they're teaching you a lie. Here, King Hezekiah, is, if that's the human writer, has great despair of soul. Our position in Christ does not remove us from the situations around us. We have many promises that the Lord will protect and lead and guide us, but it does not remove the, the problems of life. He was recovered miraculously from his illness. Wouldn't we say, praise the Lord, what a wonderful thing years added to his life, only to have other national problems that were just as horrible. Uh, overwhelming circumstances. He and his wife, for example, let me, let me just tell you some of those. He and his wife were barren. There was no son to inherit the kingdom and to carry on his, out his legacy. And I remind you, that means that the, the royal Davidic line would end if Hezekiah and his wife did not have a child. And so the very promises of God to David were hinged upon that. Now, that's a big problem, isn't it, for us humanly? Uh, I have no son, no child. And, Lord, did you make these promises just to lead us here and leave it here and, and us become a laughing stock to the nations and in the line of David to be end? The prophet Isaiah ministered during this time and gave him the sign of the sundial, the sign that must have inspired the writing and the collecting of these songs of degrees. But no son was born. The, pro the preacher comes by to encourage and give a verse. And, but the circumstances were not changed. Years would pass before a son would be born to him. So think about that years, a period of however many period of time that was. Proverbs thirteen twelve says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And not only was he without a son, but Hezekiah had national enemies. The, the plot thickens, doesn't it? The, the picture gets darker. And Assyria was plotting to come and take over Judah. The capital city of Assyria, I remind you, was Nineveh. You remember Nineveh, do you not? Huge, vast city. A wicked, mean, fierce, ruthless people. Assyria was a world power and had been for hundreds of years. And now they were on the march. They decided they were going to march and capture everything in their, their, their path. And uh, Judah and Jerusalem was in that path. The messengers came. Assyria's on the horizon. They're gathering their armies, thousands and thousands and thousands of burly, ruthless soldiers, armored with all the weaponry of warfare. Assyria was certain that they could overthrow puny, insignificant Judah. And so, humanly speaking, there's a, the lines are drawn, and it doesn't look very hopeful, does it? Hezekiah tried appeasement. He, he did what he could do. I mean, he did what a king would do. He uh, sent messages of appeasement to try to work out some kind of deal. Surely we can work this out. But he failed. He thought that Babylon and Egypt would then 
come to his aid. They had half-heartedly pledged their support. And so often when we try the first line of thinking, we say, well, maybe I can get so-and-so, and if they came along and helped me, that would work. We always think of some plan, some scheme to help us out of our situation. And they had half-heartedly indicated, both Babylon and Egypt, that they would come and, and form some kind of alliance. They didn't, and, but if they had, it would have been no match against Assyria. The godly prophet Isaiah told him and warned him not to trust in human helpers. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own, the old song tells us. Hezekiah saw the enemy advancing and with no apparent help in sight. And so you can see why if this is Hezekiah, he could say, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Help, hear us, let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. What lay ahead for the nation? We might ask ourselves that question here today. America has always been very proud and of huge defense. And I was reading yesterday in the Wall Street Journal of how China is developing unbelievable nuclear subs and are and increasing their armory and their artillery and all the. I'm not using the right terms, but. Uh, Things are in, the mo- in motion. We know it, Russia is un- unease and the Ukraine, all these situations all over the world. What lay ahead for his nation? And I would ask, what lay- lies ahead for this nation? Obliteration, conquer, slaughter, deportation and exile? Would God's people be destroyed and Jehovah's plan and purpose be annihilated? Some might ask, oh, Brother Lamb, that couldn't happen. The Lord has promised to come again and bless His church and that Jesus will rule and reign. Well, we don't know what will happen between now and then. We don't know what God's plans are. I know that one thing, that God judges sin. He has done it in every age, into every nation. He does not overlook a sin. On top of this, even more depressing was Judah's spiritual condition. And I would tell you, far more uh, troublesome than China's submarines and Russia's the sleeping giant and whoever else we might appear and point to. The biggest problem and the largest threat to this country is our spiritual condition. Apostasy, departing from Jehovah and serving idols, and had been going on throughout the nation for years. And Israel, the northern kingdom, had ravaged, been ravaged and the best of the people had already been deported. And so, this is a a dark time. Hezekiah's father, a horribly wicked ruler, had caused Judah to sink to the lowest point of apostasy and idol worship. Hezekiah had brought about some reforms, but it was a surface show with little real difference. The hearts of the people were still hard, still rebellious, and still were worshiping their idols. Some of the vilest open sins had been dealt with, and and the false religions had been removed at least openly, but their hearts were unchanged. You see, you can reform, you can turn over a new leaf, but until there's godly sorrow and repentance and a real work of the Spirit, reformation only lasts until the emergency is over with or until the the, the cloud has passed. We've seen that in our nation, haven't we? The 9-11 bombings and, oh, the churches were filled for a while and people were praying and seeking God's face, but that didn't last very long, did it? A few years later, Hezekiah would be dead, and things would be worse than ever. The long-desired son, Manasseh, would be born. The long-prayed-for heir, 
of Hezekiah would be Judah's worst king ever. With a long and vile reign. And they would never get over his horrible, sinful reign. A serious threat would be over only to be replaced by Babylon's threats. You see, the enemies, they may have different names, different directions they're coming from. The names change, but the circumstances are the same. So we can clearly see, if if this is Hezekiah, why he declares, Out of the depths I have cried unto thee, O Lord. I think the difference between Hezekiah's day and our day, we don't see the depths. We don't really realize how late it is, how sinful we are, how pitiful uh, our our, our situation is. Notice in verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. This is interceding. This is going before the Lord. Every generation needs intercessors. All of us who know the Lord can can be a part, as I've already mentioned, in this all-important ministry. You want a ministry? Take the, the church membership list and go down it and pray and plead. You, you pray for those that you see, those that you, in your neighborhood, your family members. Pray specifically. You've got eyes. You can see what's going on. And you can say, Lord, if I'm wrong, you direct this prayer in the right way. But this is what it seems to be. Be very specific. General prayers get general answers. Specific prayers do. Lord, stop this person from making this mistake. It looks like they're going the wrong direction. Just very plainly tell the Lord. Ask the Lord to intercede and to bless and to help and to open up spiritual eyes and understanding. All of us can do that. All of us can be uh, in, in this important ministry, the mediator. While I have all of you on my heart and mind, there are those that very early every morning I seek the Lord's face for. Some who've, who've departed from the faith. Some people very dear to me. People I love. And it grieves me. It seems absolutely hopeless. But the Lord is in charge, isn't he? He's sovereign. He can do what, what his arm is not short. He can do what we, what we do not think. He can go where I cannot go personally, where I might not be received personally. His spirit can go and knock on the door and open it up and do work that I could never do. The majority is on the broad road leading to destruction. But here and there is an, an Abraham, a Samuel, John the Baptist, voices crying out in the wilderness. The Lord's always had just a few to do that. Hezekiah became Israel's mediator. He pleads with God like Abraham, like Moses did, and like Samuel did. And during his first year as king, he repaired, and we must point out what he did do. He repaired and reopened the doors of the temple. Unbelievably, it had been blocked up and closed up. Can you imagine the glorious temple of God, the most magnificent building on earth, like a warehouse, boarded and closed up, rubbish had been piled up in it. And we have to give Hezekiah the credit, he reopened the house of God. And then he called for and reassembled the priests and the Levites. He had them to clean up the temple. They should have. That was their business. The Levites carried the furniture. And oversaw it. And the, the priests who offered the sacrifices. And the king had the authority. He said, you folks, what were they doing all that time? Well, they'd gone off into idolatry. They were doing their own pleasure. They weren't seeing after the things of God. Get into the house of God and clean it up. And open it up. And get rid of all the trash and the rubbish that had been piled up there. Well, there may not be pile, a visible trash and rubbish piled up in the house of God. But in many places, there's a lot of things that need to be cleaned out. There needs to be a house cleaning. What does Peter say? Judgment must begin where? Down at the saloon? Down on Fifth Avenue? 
No, where should judgment begin? At the household of God. And for us, the household of God is the church of Christ, the, the very people who make up the, the church, and not necessarily a building. This is not the house of God, although we might refer to it as that. We meet here, but we're the household of God. We need to do some cleaning, some cleaning out. Lord, what is in my life that displeases you? Have you? When was the last time you prayed that? Lord, what do I need to leave off or take away or eliminate? What's piled up that I've... Have you ever found something on a pile of papers and you thought, there that is, I didn't know where that was. You hadn't been careless, it just things that got piled up on it. And the, yeah, there you, it might have been a birth certificate. It might have been your license or, or a check you'd been looking for. And just piled up. And so that can happen spiritually where the most vital and important thing that we need is there, but you can't get to it. You don't know what's there. It's covered up. Clothes draped over it. Uh, thoughts and careless things piled up on top of it. Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Oh, if God's people set about to pray like that. And then after they were shown it, did business about it and ruthlessly killed Agag and chopped him to pieces. You see, Agag is just a symbol of sin. Those kings that rule over us, those idols that, uh, that raise their ugly heads. There's only one thing to do with Agag. You can't spare Agag. You can't pet Agag. You can't make a deal with Agag. God requires you to kill him, to chop him up. That's the old man. That's the old sins that, that plague us. It took them two weeks to haul off all the rubbish of the temple. Is that not amazing? And we, there were thousands of Levites and priests, so courses of them, hundreds and thousands of them. And it took them two weeks to clean out the temple. We're not talking about, Lord, lay me down to sleep. If I've done anything, let me know about it and, and, and hasten on our way. Lord, bless us and help us and show us if we've done wrong. And this is casual. No, it might take weeks of introspection before the Lord. Show me, Lord. And then dealing with it one by one, making amends, making restitution. Seeking forgiveness and restoration. That's revival. A work of the Spirit showing us our sin, showing us the promises of God, realigning ourselves with those things. And I, I, you wonder if what rubbish had accumulated there. Don't you? The Scripture doesn't tell us, but it makes you wonder what was there. I'll tell you this. I don't know what was there, but I know this much. It was unnecessary. It shouldn't have been there. It didn't belong there. It cluttered up. The house of God. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. Weights are not necessarily sin, but they keep us from getting to where we need to go. Drag us down. Uh, when you run a 5K or whatever, you don't pack a suitcase. All the things you might need for the you don't you don't take a bunch of stuff with you. You pare down and you you get ready for you lay aside things. Your overcoat and Tuxedo. You don't need to do that kind of thing when you're running a race. That all that that needs to be done away with. Shallow preaching. I'm wondering about the rubbish of the church that needs to be dealt with. We could talk about that individually, but we need to look at it corporately as well. Shallow preaching, prayerless ceremonies, the lack of public scripture reading, uh, the, no no prayer, little attendance at prayer meetings, fleshly man-centered worship, which is more entertainment than what our Lord requires. What does He require? God is spirit. 
And they that worship him must worship him how? In spirit and in truth. And amazingly, that portion of scripture, which is often overlooked, is that the worship, true worshipers, Jesus said, shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is searching for those who will worship him from the spirit, with the spirit and from the heart and in truth according to his word. Then Hezekiah uh, restored uh, true temple worship after they cleaned it up. And he reinstated the offering of sacrifices. Unbelievably, the very core of what Israel was to do to represent the coming Messiah, they'd forgotten. It'd be like a church never observing the Lord's Supper, never pointing to the work of Christ. He reestablished those things, which had been long neglected. and, And he reorganized the temple choir. And we notice in 2 Chronicles in chapter 29... The scripture tells us some amazing things that, that he did there. He, in the first year, verse 3, he says he, he opened the house of the doors of the house of the Lord. He brought in the priests and the Levites. He said unto them, Sanctify now, in verse 5 of Second Chronicles 29, yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord, set it apart. You see, there's a sense that we sanctify the things of God. We set them apart. The Lord's day, the Lord's house, our hearts in worship to him. Make provision for it. We're to do our part. Have you made provision for this day today? Have you asked the Lord to speak to your heart? And he said to them, Hear uh, me, you Levites, sanctify. And then he told the leaders of worship, the choir members, the choir director, set, set yourself apart and carry, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil, but they're gone and it's on our watch now, so we need to take, our, take the matters in hand and to do the right thing. And, and we, we have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the inhabitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They've turned their back on the things of God, the house of God. And they've shut up the doors of the porch. Let's just might as well bar it up. Nobody's coming anyway. Put out the lamps. They've not burned incense, which is a sign of prayer, is a symbol of prayer. They've not offered incense. They've not offered burnt offerings of the holy place unto the Lord our God. Wherefore, the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem. And he hath delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, and to hissing, as you see with your eyes. Assyria was on the horizon. The Lord says, them that honor me will I honor. What is the opposite of that? Those who lightly esteem me will I lightly esteem. Well, it goes on to say what all he did. True temple worship was restored. Then he organized the, the Passover observance. The first that they had observed in years and years. He sent out invitations to all of Judah and to the remnant of Israel in the north, urging them to join with them. Come help us. We've set aside this time to seek the Lord's face. Come join with us. Help us in this national effort to worship. It's always discouraging as a pastor when he sets aside time and tries to urge his people, let's join together, let's seek the Lord's face. And some very lightly regard it and just say, well, I don't know about that. But Hezekiah made the effort. And verse 18 of our uh, of Second Chronicles 29 says, And they all with one accord. I'm sorry, I meant the wrong scripture there. It reminds me, I had noted here, of the great feast that the Lord had, in the parable that he gave. And he says, invite all these people to my feast. And he did, didn't he? He says, the Lord, everything's ready. And remember the excuses the people made for why they couldn't come? They all with one accord began to make excuse. I bought a piece of ground. I need to go see about it. 
And it sounds real logical, except who would buy a piece of ground without seeing it to start with? You'd ought to have already seen about it if you bought it. You see the, illog- the lack of logic here? Oh, I've purchased a, a, a piece of property sight unseen, so I'll, I'll have to be gone. Uh, I bought five yoke of oxen. That's like a new tractor, a new truck. But I've got to go prove them and see if they really will, you know, G and haul. Well, who would have bought oxen without having proved them to start with? Wouldn't you have given them a test run before you invested uh, in them? And the, the, someone said the only logical excuse was the one that said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. That's all he says, I have a wife. <laughs> well, I'll let you think whatever you want to about that. But that is the scripture, and that's exactly what he said. And the master said in that parable in Luke 8, 14, verse 24, For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste at my supper. What does that mean? They have missed the blessing. It's come and gone. And they will not enjoy what I had planned for them, what I'd set aside for them. Do you know that the Lord has, he, he said, I know the thoughts I think toward you, that the Lord wants to give us spiritual blessings, and he is a, by his own means has appointed how he will do that. We must gather daily manna in the word of God, just as the Israel of old did. He's appointed that means of feeding us. He's ordained public worship and the preaching of the word of God, the teaching of the word, corporate prayer and singing. All of that the Lord came, came up. We didn't invent that. The church, God is the architect of the church in the meeting and all that he tells us to do. They, they miss the meal. They miss the blessing that God had for them. Hezekiah begged the, the people not to repeat the sins of their fathers, which had brought the nation so low. But do you know what? Many of them mocked his efforts. And that's often the way that, that, that truth is presented. Well, who do you think you are? Well, it may not be what you th- say. And the people gave all kinds of excuses and began to mock Hezekiah's urgings in his plan to restore and revive the nation. We cannot conjure up revival. We cannot make the blessing of the Lord to take place. But we can use the means that he's ordained. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, the means of prayer. We use the means that God has ordained and and claim and pray for his blessing. And he has promised to do so. Hezekiah was still undeterred. And he destroyed all the altars of the false gods. Now that took courage. And they were scattered throughout the country, these false places of worship. And he had the authority to do it as king. And we cannot make all the analogies here. We have no authority to go around and destroy false places of worship. We can do that through prayer, can't we? We can, we can embattle the, the, the gates of hell through the pleading of our uh, the promises of God at the mercy seat. But Hezekiah was king. This was a theocracy. And he had the authority to tear down these false uh, idols and these false gods. We, we do that through, through truth through the preaching of truth and through prayer. They did observe the Passover with great celebration and rejoicing for a whole week. The king kept on with his reforms and destroying all the, the traces of idolatry. He reorganized, as we mentioned, the priesthood. He removed uh, the, the idols. He revived the law for setting aside tithes and offerings for the Lord's servants. And this temporary revival, it was a revival, and we, we must give him credit But it, as far as it went. It, but that's only all it did. It only went so far. And it was led by the temporary revival in Judah. It was led by two men, King Hezekiah. And Isaiah the prophet. Now I want you to think of that. These two men, the king and the preacher, you will, the prophet and the king. Do you see how often that God uses just a handful of people to do what he wants to do? Isaiah and Hezekiah in that vast nation, 
stood against Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, and the hard-heartedness of God's people. That's why he can say, Lord, hear my voice. Hezekiah keeps praying and repenting. And we look there in verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? What a, what a truthful statement. Now, he could mark iniquities, couldn't he? He knows all things. He sees every thought and intent. He's recorded everything. Let me ask you this morning. How many sins does it take to make you a sinner, somebody a sinner? Just one, doesn't it? James 2 verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And of course, the scripture tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so I ask this question, what hope does anyone have if God, who knows and sees all things, even to the very thoughts and the intents of the heart, and he knows the number of hairs on our head, and how many steps we will take in a lifetime, the scripture says. My times are in his hands, and he holds our times in his hands. If he would call into account as he could, he could, couldn't he? The bank that holds your mortgage, do you realize they could call that in any time they want to? That loan that you have, why? It's their money, and they've made the loan. They could call in loans when they wanted to. God could, if he wanted to, he could... Call into account every misbehavior, every thought, every word that you and I have said or done. And he will do that at the great ju- on the great day. It's the great white throne judgment. Every man will have to stand there. It, it, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, we all know here. Who can stand? No one can stand. There's no excuse. There's no one who can say what my father was or I went to or I was a member. There's no thing, nothing that we could bring up. Who would be left standing? The only one who would be left standing is the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the one who became flesh, the one who knew no sin, but was made sin for us. For there is none righteous, no, not one. We are all then marked and beyond hope if left to ourselves. We can't even remember all of our sins, can we? To confess them. If we we were to come and try to, to, to remember them all to confess, it would be hard put. Our memories are so short in that department. We never can truly know the depths of them, how, how far-reaching that sin was, that deed or act or that, that gossip or whatever. We, ne- we never know how, uh, how encompassing that sin was. And so how could we truly confess and repent of all of it? We do the best we can. So that even the ones we remember, we can't exactly and fully confess them. But God does know all. He marks sin. He has all... Acknowledge and, and he keeps impeccable records of all things, of all of his creation and creatures. And so we're in a desperate situation, aren't we? All we can do is throw ourselves at the mercy of God and plead the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his marvelous act of justification, he removes all guilt of sin. He removes all sin. And so we can gladly say there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But if God were to mark sin, And outside of Christ, He will. All those outside of Christ. All we'll be able to say is the blood of Christ. I bring nothing in my hands except the the, the cross of Christ, I plead. That will be the only thing that will answer in that day. Others will try to, to, like Adam and Eve, bring some kind of cloak cloak of righteousness. But what's wrong with that? Those robes will be as filthy rags, won't they? They won't be able to, to stand. This is the best that man can come up with is the putrid, stinking, filthy rags. 
Oh, Lord, if you're to mark sins and call every account into to account today, where would we stand? Hezekiah asked him not to mark sin. If he did, who could stand? No one. Notice what Hezekiah declares in verse 4. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Oh, Brother Lamb, you painted a dark picture here. You painted us in a corner. I hope I have. But I hope I'll point you to Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness with thee. Yes, he does mark sin. Yes, there is an accurate record. Yes, there's no one who can answer against the record, the literal record against your name in heaven, except the work that Jesus Christ did on your behalf at Calvary. That's why we can come to him, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. Oh, what a standing is mine, we sing about. Our standing is in Christ. And our record is Christ's record. You and I don't have a record, do we? It's a marked one. It's the, you know, I, I have every one of my report cards from first grade through, through graduate school. I have them in a folder. Why? I can't explain to you. I'm just one of those people that keeps things. And uh, I've ne- let no one look at them. I've never let my children look at them. My mother died recently, and we went through all of her things, and we found her report cards. I guess that's where I got it. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, although I didn't know them. And I saw her grades and her records. Now, my mother stood over me and made sure I got my homework, and, and I, you know, she, that would be diligent. And I didn't always do exactly. I'm not proud of my records, I'll tell you that. It shows that if I can get through, anybody can get through. I'm not bragging about it at all. But there they are, and they're stark reality. C in conduct. <laughs> Uh, you know, B, B minuses, and all those that nobody are D's, and there's some F's on there. I'm not proud of that. It is a record, though. And at the college I went to, and the one down the street here, they've got a record, I'm sure, somewhere of those those grades and performances and so forth. Far more important than that is the record that God knows and sees. What are we going to do about it? Just as I can't change any one of those grades, can't go back and do a thing about it. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from sins. And we notice here in verse 4, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Notice that important phrase there, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a, a worshipful, reverential awe and a trust which includes not only a love and a desire for God, but a The fear of the Lord has a a love and desire for God and a holiness and His holiness, but also an equal hatred and turning from sin. Do you understand the fear of the Lord? There's this love and desire to to serve the Lord and to have His holiness. At the same time, there's an equal hatred and fear and horror of sin and turning from sin. God does mercifully, we must close here, and we'll not be able to finish our chapter today. God does mercifully forgive us. There is forgiveness. There is cleansing with Him. But the only place that is is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I urge you, run there. Run to Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness with thee. Sin must be dealt with. God is not a grandfather in heaven winking and saying, Oh, well, I know you didn't mean you didn't, and just make some excuse by it. Sin has to be forgiven at the point of guilt. And that's what we'll need to to discuss as we continue our study the next Lord's Day. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your holy and infallible word. Teach it to us and may this sink deep in our hearts and minds and may we deal with ourselves and our sins as you would have us to. In Jesus' precious name.